Welcome to Law Talk, a podcast series produced by the University of Minnesota Law School, featuring events, webinars, and panel discussions about diverse topics at the intersection of law, policy, and education. This episode, Insights from the Bench, a panel discussion with high court justices, feature three Minnesota law alumni who serve on the highest court in their state, who will participate in a moderated discussion on timely and critical judicial topics. The three featured Minnesota law alumni panelists are Justice Barry Anderson, who served on the Minnesota Court of Appeals from 1998 until his appointment to the Minnesota Supreme Court in 2004. Prior to serving on the bench, he was a partner in the law firm of Arnold Anderson and Dove, PLLP, and served the city of Hutchinson, Minnesota as a city attorney from 1987 to 1998. Justice Natalie Hudson, who was appointed to the Minnesota Supreme Court in 2015. Prior to that, she served on the Minnesota Court of Appeals. Hudson's professional experience also includes serving as a staff attorney with Southern Minnesota Regional Legal Services, associate attorney at Robbins, Kaplan, Miller, and Cerisi, assistant dean of student affairs at Hamline University School of Law, and an attorney for the city of St. Paul. Until her appointment to the Court of Appeals, she was employed with the Office of the Minnesota Attorney General, primarily in the Criminal Appellate Division. Justice Janine Kern who was appointed to the Supreme Court of South Dakota in 2014. Prior to serving on the court, Justice Kern worked in the Attorney General's office serving in the Appellate Division, Drug Prosecution Unit, and as Director of the Litigation Division. She was appointed to a Circuit Court Judge in 1996 in the 7th Judicial District and served 18 years on the trial court bench. The event was moderated by Judge Lejeune Lang. Judge Lang began her legal career with the Hennepin County Public Defender's Office until appointed to the bench. Judge Lang served as a 4th District Judicial Court Judge in Minnesota handling complex civil and criminal cases until her recent retirement after 21 years on the bench. In her retirement, Judge Lang is an Honorary Consul of South Africa in Minnesota, President of the International Leadership Institute, serves as a Senior Fellow with the Roy Wilkins Center for Human Relations and Social Justice at the Humphrey School of Public Affairs, and is an Adjunct Faculty Member at the St. Thomas School of Law. This event was part of the Spring Alumni Week 2021 and was recorded on April 20th, 2021. Subscribe to the Minnesota Law Podcast feed on SoundCloud or via your preferred podcast network for more Law Talk episodes as well as other podcast content produced by Minnesota Law. Welcome, everyone. I'm Gary Jenkins. Uh, I'm Dean of the Law School. And it's a real pleasure to welcome everyone to our panel today for Spring Alumni Week. Uh, We have a lot of Minnesota law alumni and students and uh, faculty and staff logged in. And we're really thrilled to present uh, this panel discussion for all of you. Uh, While I wish that we could all be together in person, I'm grateful that we can connect today. So uh, before we begin, just a few notes. Uh, Today's webinar is being recorded and the link to the recording will be shared uh, via email following the link. We And also you should know that we have the live audio uh, captioning enabled. Um, so please feel free to pick Uh, click on live transcription. You can either turn that feature on or off, 
whatever is your preference. Uh, it's at the bottom of your Zoom screen, uh, and uh, and you can have that set to your likings for our discussion. Uh, you all are all truly the foundation of our Minnesota law community, especially during all of the challenges of the past year. So I wanna thank you for your engagement, for your continued generous support, for your passion for Minnesota law. It enables us to bring talented students here to ensure that they are taught well uh, and supported by caring staff and that the community benefits from powerful research and outreach. Uh, I'm very grateful for all of you. Uh, and the second thing I wanna say thanks to the four is our terrific advancement team. Uh, they've organized the events of the week and I especially wanna thank Alyssa Chafee for organizing tonight's event. Now, before I introduce our speakers for tonight, I wanna acknowledge two of our most distinguished alumni who aren't with us tonight. The first is Vice President Walter Mondale, class of 56. His death is a tremendous loss to our community as well as uh, to the state and the entire country as a politician and a public servant and a diplomat and a lawyer, he's had the kind of career that we hope all students aspire to. Uh, his, the values of leadership and service that underlie our work were embodied by Walter Mondale. He loved this law school and we loved him back. Uh, I have so many fond memories of him, uh, including the students serenading him in song. Uh, to the music of Hamilton, they changed the words to Walter Frederick Mondale instead of Alexander Hamilton. And, uh, and the song talked about his impact on our country and his impact on them as future leaders. And he loved it. He lit up, uh, he was so kind, so full of wisdom. Uh, and humility. So if you have not had a chance to look at our memorial article, our virtual uh, tribute book, um, we're asking alumni and students and faculty together to share memories um, and, and thanks for, for his life. Uh, so please, uh, please feel, please take a look at those, both of which were in the email that you should have received from me earlier today. And the second person that I also want to acknowledge is another alumnus who was supposed to be with us just this evening. He was supposed to be on this very panel. He actually came up with the idea to do this as part of Spring Alumni Week. Um, uh, when we were sitting together in his office in New York City uh, and came up with this idea. I'm talking about another dear friend, Judge Paul Feynman, class of 85. Uh, he was a judge on the New York Court of Appeals. That's of course that state's highest court. He recently lost his battle with leukemia and just passed away on March 31st 
uh, one week after stepping down from the court because of his health. Judge Feynman was a great friend uh, to this law school, to me personally. Uh, speaking, he was always willing to come and speak to our students, to mentor our students, to hire our students. Uh, he, he was a true Minnesotan at heart even though he was a judge in New York and he loved our law school and we miss him dearly. So with that, I wanna get us started. I wanna get us started on the substance and I wanna introduce our distinguished panel and our moderator uh, because we are in tonight for a great discussion. So our first panelist is Justice Barry Anderson. He's a member of the class of 79. He served on the Minnesota Court of Appeals from 1998 until his appointment to the Minnesota Supreme Court in 2004. Uh, prior to serving on the bench, he was a partner at the law firm of Arnold Anderson and Dove. He served the city of Hutchinson as city attorney from 87 to 98. He's a frequent visitor in Mondale Hall, and we appreciate him. Thank you, Justice Anderson, for being here. And our second panelist is also another great friend of the law school, Justice Natalie Hudson, a member of the class of 82. She was appointed to the Minnesota Supreme Court in 2015. Prior to that, she served on the Minnesota Court of Appeals starting in 2002. Her professional experience includes serving as a staff attorney with uh, Smurls, as an associate attorney at Robbins Kaplan, as assistant dean uh, at Hamlin Law School, and as St. Paul City attorney. Uh, from 1994 until her appointment on the court, she was with uh, the Minnesota Attorney General uh, Appellate, Criminal Appellate Division. So welcome, Justice Hudson. And then our third panelist is Justin Justice Janine Kern, a member of the class of 85. She's celebrating her slightly delayed 35th reunion this week. Uh, so we congratulate her on that. Uh, she was appointed to the Supreme Court of South Dakota in 2014. Prior to serving on the court, she worked in the Attorney General's office from 85 to 96 in the Appellate Division uh, and served as Director of, Lit of the Litigation Division, among other things. And she was appointed a judge in 1996, served 18 years on the trial bench uh, before becoming uh, a member of the South Dakota Supreme Court. Welcome, Justice. And moderating tonight's discussion is Judge Lejeune Lang class of 78. Judge Lang began her legal career with the Hennepin County Public Defender's Office until she was appointed to the bench. She served as a fourth, uh, uh, as a judge on the fourth judicial uh, uh, court uh, here in Minnesota, handling complex uh, civil and criminal cases until her recent retirement after 21 years on the bench. Uh, in her retirement, she is honorary counsel of South Africa in Minnesota president of the International Leadership Institute, and serves as a fellow uh, with the Roy Wilkins Center uh, for Human Relations and Social Justice at the Humphrey School of Public Affairs, and is an adjunct faculty at St. Thomas Law School. Welcome, Judge Lang. So with that, I will just say one last word of detail. We will reserve time at the end to address your questions submitted via the Q&A feature found at the bottom of your Zoom screen. 
So once again, welcome to all of you. Welcome to our judges, justices, and over to you, Judge Lang. Thank you so much, uh, Dean Jenkins. It is an honor to be part of this program tonight at the University of Minnesota Law School. While we were sad with the passing of uh, Walter Mondale and Judge Feynman, what stellar careers they had. It's an honor to the law school to have them as alums. And now we are going to proceed. I will ask the first question to Justice Barry Anderson. And the first question is, at what point did you decide that you were interested in becoming a judge? And what about it appealed to you at the time? And if you turn on your microphone, then we'll hear from you. So uh, thanks so much, Judge Lang, for uh, the question. Dean Jenkins, thanks for the introduction. Uh, I'm going to take just two quick little detours. I just want to tell one very quick Walter Mondale story. Um, I did not know former Vice President Mondale well, but I had run, run into him professionally in a couple of um, matters. And also I had the privilege of being with him at an appearance that he and former Governor Al Qui uh, were at at the Supreme Court Historical Society, Minnesota Supreme Court Historical Society. Um, this is probably five, six years ago, something like that, where the two of them talked about their experiences in uh, government uh, and um, particularly as it intersected with judicial selection. And uh, it was just a fascinating hour and a half to hear these two um, giants of Minnesota history. Uh, one is still with us, one has left us, but um, what a great privilege to, uh, to have had them um, as public servants. The second thing I just want to say is it's always a pleasure to come back to the university. I'd like to be doing this live uh, at the uh, at the law school. Um, this will this will suffice. I'm sure it'll be great. Um, I have uh, great memories from my time at the law school. Then um, there are some other memories I don't recall anymore, and that's probably just fine. So let's talk a little bit about how I managed to wind up as a judge. And I begin with the observation for those uh, law school students who have with us who are uncertain about your plan for life. Um, that's just okay, because it's probably not going to turn out like you plan anyway. My theory in law school was that I was going to be a trial lawyer. That was what I was interested in doing. Uh, I wound up taking a position with a um, defense-oriented but, uh, but general litigation law firm in Fairmont. And for 20 years or so, um, I was uh, uh, busy trying cases, and I gave no very little thought uh, to being a judge. Made no real plans to do so. Um, I did flirt with a couple of district court uh, vacancies. Um, there's some stories there that um, uh, that might be of some interest, but we won't take our time tonight. But in uh, 1998, uh, there was a vacancy on the Minnesota Court of Appeals that I hadn't really thought too much about. Uh, it was created by the retirement of a former Speaker of the House uh, and uh, Court of Appeals judge, uh, Fred Norton. Um, and I got phone calls from a couple of lawyer friends saying, well, you should think about applying. Uh, Governor Carlson used a merit selection process. Um, I sort of debated it. The local district court judge called me up and told me I shouldn't do it because all the real action is in district court, as Judge Lang will be happy to share with you. Um, and as he put it, you know, those appellate judges, they just sit around and think deep thoughts and write write papers that nobody reads. Well, I don't know if that's true or not, but but uh, Judge Yost, uh, the late Judge Yost now uh, was a friend of mine and thought maybe I'd be better suited to the district court. But in any event, 
that's when I started thinking seriously about it. I'd reached a point in life. I was 44 years old. I liked what I was doing. Um, but you, you had one of those opportunities and you think to yourself, do I want to continue doing this for another 20 years or do I want to try something else? And so for me, it was a real culture shift for me in a whole bunch of ways. Uh, but um, uh, it, uh, that's what prompted it. And just to illustrate the culture shift, and then I'll shut up because there are other people to talk here. Um, I was in a very retail heavy practice, lots of people in and out of the door. This is pre-cell phone. What do you do in that era? You go to a conference. So I went to my very first conference as a judge shortly after my appointment. And I got up in the morning and I called the office, my very new administrative assistant who I'd been introduced to three days earlier. And she says, I don't have any messages for you. And I called after the morning break at 1030. No, I don't have any messages. And then I called her at 1.30 and she said, listen, we have work here to do. If we need you, we'll call you. Um, you know, it, there's a very real difference between appellate work and the work that the district court judges were doing and the work that I was doing as a trial lawyer. Anyway, long answer, Judge Lang, but there you go. Thank you so much. We're going to move next to Justice Natalie Hudson to talk about your path to the bench and how you decided to become a judge. Thank you, Judge Lang. Oh, I'm getting an echo. I don't know if others can hear it, but uh, I'll keep talking. Okay, so maybe it's just me, but thank you. Um, you know, my my career has primarily been in the public sector, uh, but in 1994, uh, the the job that I think was just uh, transformational for me was I had the opportunity to work at the Attorney General's office in their criminal appellate division. And it actually came about by accident. I was assigned initially to a different division and had wanted to get into the appellate work, but just hadn't seen an opportunity to do so. And then um, it just so happened there were some retirements and some maternity leaves in the appellate division. And the manager of the division at the time sent out an email saying, is there anybody we need help? You know, we need some people to volunteer. Somebody, you know, do help us. And I responded. I said, yeah, I'd love to do that. I'd love to. You know, that's what I wanted to do. And uh, and I it started with one brief and then another one came along and I apparently did well enough with it that they asked me to do another one. But what it turned into is it gave me the opportunity to argue regularly before the Court of Appeals and the Supreme Court. And um, and I loved it. I had done like I say, I had done a number of different things during my career, but I really knew that I had found my niche um, doing the appellate work. And then it was after one of my arguments before the Court of Appeals when I walked out and I thought, you know, um, other than I think it might have been Judge Toussaint at the time, there were no judges of color on the Court of Appeals. And, um, you know, I, I it just struck me one day. I thought, you know, the, the, the law has impacted people of color in just so many ways and largely negative or often negative. But yet we've played very little, a very small role, if any, in the development of the law. And um, and so when this opening came up on the Court of Appeals, um, you know, I several people kind of like what Justice Anderson was saying, a few people were saying, you ought to think about that. You 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 might you ought to put your name in. And I, you know, after a while, I thought, yeah, I should. Um, I want to be on the other side of the bench. I think I have something to offer. Um, 
And so, you know, nothing ventured, nothing gained. So I put my name in and uh, Jesse Ventura was the governor at the time. Um, and, uh, you know, the next thing I knew, I he appointed me. And that was in 2002. And I spent 13 years on the Court of Appeals. Uh, and then Governor Dayton appointed me in 2015 to the Supreme Court. So it, it, it um, you know, it came about by just me kind of pushing my way into that appellate division in the attorney general's office and finding a way to to get into uh, the appellate courts, which I've loved. Did you also find camaraderie with Justice Huspany and the other uh, judges on the Court of Appeals at the time, the women? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Uh, Judge Husband, what a jewel. Uh, so sorry to uh, to see her passing here recently. Um, she was wonderful, as were the other women that were on the court. Um, so, yes, it, there was a definite uh, camaraderie there. Um, and uh, it, it was great. I, I thoroughly enjoyed my 13 years there. Absolutely. Well, thank you. We're going to move to Justice Janine Kern, who is uh, serving on the Supreme Court in South Dakota. And we'd like you to talk about your journey to the bench, please. Thank you, Judge Lang. I'd also like to thank you, uh, thank the Dean, uh, and uh, thank you all for the opportunity to appear uh, with uh, the distinguished members also of the Minnesota uh, Supreme Court. You know, I graduated in 1985, and I uh, I knew I wanted a career in public service, and I had narrowed it down between a position in the attorney general's office in Pierre, which would be a return home to me to South Dakota, or a position as a public defender in a rural part uh, of Minnesota, uh, because I knew that I desired a, a career of public service in a more rural uh, lifestyle. And so... I took the position in the attorney general's office and, uh, like Judge Hudson, um, went into the appellate division there, uh, where um, I spent three years. I also loved uh, my time in the appellate division, and in some ways, um, my career has come full circle now, serving on um, an appellate um, court uh, for the state of South Dakota. Uh, I also wanted the opportunity to litigate uh, and to try cases, and so I worked in a uh, the drug prosecution unit and then went on to direct the criminal litigation division. And because we had statewide jurisdiction, I was able to work with law enforcement agencies and to, to uh, do investigative drug uh, and other criminal grand juries around the state. And that opportunity gave me the chance to start appearing before the judges throughout the state. And I, I wound up in those years, I was there 11 and a half, 12 years, um, appearing in front of almost all of the judges in the state. And that inspired me and it, and it gave me uh, a desire uh, to serve uh, as a judge, as a circuit court judge. Um, my grandfather and father uh, were lawyers. My father uh, had served as a judge and I admired his service. I admired the, the process of helping people solve their disputes in a, uh, in a fair and equitable and just forum uh, under the rule of law. Um, there were no women serving on the bench as circuit court judges in South Dakota um, at all uh, when I started the practice of law. Um, there were one or two magistrate judges, I believe, uh, across the state, but no women on the Supreme Court, no women uh, serving as circuit court judges. And so as I began to practice and appear in front of uh, judges, I thought I eventually developed a confidence um, 
to believe that I could serve in that capacity. And I began the process of applying through this merit selection uh, process. And I went on the bench uh, in 96 and served in a busy general jurisdiction court uh, for uh, 18 years. Uh, and I must say that through the years now, uh, we have 43 circuit court judges and all, uh, well, I think there's something uh, with the trans select, uh, the merit selection that Justice Andrew spoke of. Yes, that um, uh, that uh, that process um, has uh, changed uh, uh, the composition of the judiciary in South Dakota. And so that's that's really where my interest began. I was appearing in front of judges across the state and being inspired by the different ways they handled their courtrooms and proceeded. Well, thank you very much. We're going to have uh, ask Judge Justice Natalie Hudson to answer the next question, which is knowing that we have alumni and current law students uh, logged on tonight who might be interested in becoming a judge. What experience uh, in your personal background do you think, other than what you've already talked about, uh, prepared you to be a judge? I think it's really the the breadth of practice that I've had, um, you know, at the Supreme Court, Court of Appeals and Supreme Court, we are very much a general, it's a general jurisdiction court. And so we hear, you know, everything from soup to nuts. And so it can be a civil litigation matter, an employment law matter uh, on the calendar. But right next to that case is a zoning case. And then maybe you've got, um, you know, a family law matter. And of course, you've got uh, a criminal uh, case as well. And so um, one of the things that's very helpful, I think, uh, on on any of the, the benches, district court or uh, appellate, but certainly at the appellate level, is to have a breadth of practice. And I developed that over the years. I started my career at, at Smurls at Legal Aid, and I was a city attorney, so I got into municipal law as a result of that. Um, and I had a short stint in private practice, um, and, and then at the attorney general's office. And so I, I had been exposed to a wide range of, of practice areas. And I think that's a real benefit um, on the court because we, as I say, we are very much uh, generalists. Um, and so I, I would encourage people to, to, to think about that. And to the extent, um, you know, you find something that you love, that's great, but maybe you could uh, branch out in, in terms of your pro bono work and things like that. So I think it's the breadth of practice. Um, you know, as an appellate judge, um, we write. You you have to have the writing and analytical skills. Um, the bulk of my day is spent either writing opinions or editing opinions. Um, and when I'm not doing that, I'm I'm reading briefs. And um, but a lot of it is is writing. And so you need to be in a position that that uh, encourages and forces you to to develop those kinds of skills. And so uh, anything that you can do in your practice, if you've got if somebody's going to go argue that summary judgment motion, maybe you ought to be the one to write that summary judgment motion as well. And so you really need to develop those strong um, analytical skills. Um, so I think those are the, the probably the two the two chief um, things that I that I would mention. And I, I guess the last thing is, you know, um, it takes a certain amount of confidence. And I, I heard Justice Kern mention this. You know, you have to get to the point where and for some of us, it comes uh, more easily uh, than it does for others. 
But you have to get to the point where you think I can do this. And some of that is just um, learning to deal with the challenges and the setbacks that come in, in, in anyone's life. And they come in all of our, our practices or most of our practices. Things don't always go the way you want. But as you deal with those setbacks and challenges, um, you, you begin, I think, over time to develop that sort of grit that you need to say, you know, I, I can do that. And, and I think that's separate from ego. Ego, you know, there's some of that too. Um, but, but it's uh, putting yourself in a position to succeed. And then, you know, on those occasions when it doesn't turn out the way you want, picking yourself back up and, and moving on from there. So. Thank you. Justice Kern, could you please talk about the difference of serving as a trial court judge and serving as a Supreme Court justice, the social isolation and the differences in terms of interaction with uh, the lawyers? Well, uh, um, it is a a great change. Uh, uh, I echo uh, what Justice Hudson said about the diversity of practices, a, a general jurisdiction trial court judge. You are seeing everything, uh, juvenile law, uh, divorce, family law. You know, I'd have um, 50 hearings uh, during the day. And so I was, you know, actively involved in the community. I knew uh, what all of the resources were that were available uh, to serve uh, the persons uh, that were coming before me, um, I knew the providers and so that I could uh, make the appropriate referrals as part of any sentencing decision uh, or uh, order. Um, I knew all of the lawyers. Um, and so I was very engaged uh, in the life of the community and very knowledgeable of the resources uh, that were uh, available. Uh, transitioning to uh, the Supreme Court, uh, is a significant difference. You're moving from uh, being a decision maker of one to a form of collective decision making. Our court uh, has five persons. So that's that's a big transition in and of itself. Uh, it involves um, collegiality, compromise, uh, the ability to uh, articulate your position and to um, convince others uh, perhaps that, that you are correct uh, in looking at this um, approach. You also have to take the long view uh, about the effect of your decisions and how they're going to impact uh, your jurisprudence. Um, you know, a, a trial court's decision in an individual case uh, doesn't carry that kind of decisional uh, weight. Um, and as you said, uh, Judge, th uh, there's also a measure of isolation. Uh, really, it's a, a complete, uh, in many ways, um, withdrawal. Um, uh, uh, from uh, social networking that may or may not have involved lawyers, at least uh, in community contact. You're not going to have lawyers appearing in front of you at all unless it's in a formally um, uh, organized and scheduled oral argument. Uh, and then you are one of five, one of this um, collective group of decision makers. Um, it's a significant change. You're also are really engaged in many ways uh, in the life of the mind. You are um, a student of the law. You are writing, researching, studying, editing, um, doing the deep dive into various uh, areas of uh, jurisprudence. You know, I thought after 18 years on the circuit court bench, I'd pretty much seen every, every uh, type of law. I found relatively quickly that that's not true. 
there are many avenues and areas of the law uh, that I've seen now just in my six uh, and a half years uh, serving as an appellate court judge that I had never seen before. Uh, diverse areas of logging, mining, I mean, um, just a whole host of um, legal issues uh, involving corporations or entities or legal doctrines that I hadn't encountered before. And that keeps uh, the work fascinating uh, and challenging. But it's a big change. Thank you. Justice Anderson, can you talk about how the Supreme Court has uh, evolved since you've been on the bench in terms of uh, collegiality and the, the diversity on the bench? Please turn on your microphone. Okay. I knew this was going to happen. I was going to be reminded to unmute. So um, it's it goes with the Zoom, right? So uh, I started on the Supreme Court in 2004. Uh, that makes me the senior justice on the court in terms of experience. Mm -hmm. And that and $10 will buy you coffee somewhere. Um, but a couple of observations about that question. Minnesota has been very fortunate during my time on the court. And for many of the years that preceded uh, that time in that we've always had a collegial court. Now, there have been, you know, you could find some opinions that suggest otherwise from time to time, because, uh, um, you know, it's uh, we, we, uh, we certainly uh, have the ability to point out perhaps fairly sharply about where we think our our, uh, our uh, uh, colleagues have uh, missed the boat, so to speak. But the reality is it is a very collegial court. And um, uh, I think actually you've got to go back many, many years to, to find a time period when it wasn't. Uh, and I think the way you maintain that is um, working very hard um, at putting that foremost. In, you know, I, I had an early lesson in this. I had a... Um, opinion that I was circulating, and Sam Hansen uh, was the first justice to get it. And this was back in the era. When you talk about how things have changed, all of our opinions in that era circulated by paper. I, my, uh, my chamber, we had a purple backing for all of our opinions. Other chambers had different colors, and off they would go so that everybody could read them before they got out. My, I, had, I, had done an, I had worked on an opinion that I thought was quite good. I had sent it along to Justice Hansen. He was the next in line to see it. And he sent it back to me with a little parenthetical note on the side saying, perhaps there was a better way to say this. Um, and it was uh, it was so polite. I almost missed the point, uh, you know, but eventually I figured out what he was talking about. What, I, what he was saying was maybe you don't need to um, sort of attack the other argument the way in which you had done so. And so I um, uh, I think that that is one of the ways you maintain collegiality. Now, in terms of the in terms of the diversity piece, um, uh, uh, I think it's really important. I'm, uh, we have a very, very diverse court. Um, I think it's also possible to overemphasize that. I mean, candidly, I don't I'll probably get myself into trouble for saying this, but I don't see a lot of difference. I, I've got six other colleagues who are, um, you know, dedicated, involved, working hard. Um, it is true they have different life experiences, and we do hear about that from time to time at conference. Um, uh, and that's useful. Uh, but the reality is um, um, it would be much different if uh, I was going to report to you that somehow the whole nature of the work of the court has changed, but it hasn't. Um, I think it's important. It's important for external reasons. It's important for uh, the work that the court does in many different communities. But in terms of the work that the court does generally, um, 
I'm just uh, I'm just thrilled with the with the uh, with the colleagues that uh, I have and how hard they work to get to the right answer. So that's how I would answer that question. Well, that sounds like a, a well-run ship, and we are proud to, most, to most hear days, your that's assessment. True. Not always, but most <laughs> days. Yes. Our next question is about judicial clerkships, and we'll begin with uh, Justice Kern and ask uh, if a law student is interested in a judicial clerkship, should they begin with a lower court, or do you hire uh, directly from uh the uh, law school for the Supreme Court in South Dakota? We uh, do hire uh, directly from the law school, and I, I have had uh, the pleasure of hiring a U of M uh, graduate who did a wonderful job uh, right out of law school. Um, and so, you know, in thinking about a clerkship, I'd urge any students that are uh, on the call to certainly strongly consider a, a clerkship. I think the best way to prepare for such a clerkship is uh, to focus on uh, the ability uh, to, to write, to learn to write well. Um, we look for raw, law review or other uh, journal or um, uh, writing experience. Uh, you know, we need um, uh, an applicant with excellent familiarity with blue book, red book, citation uh, protocols. Um, we uh, consult and rely on, on Garner's citation uh, manuals. Um, and look at legal texts uh, that he's, he's really co contributed quite a bit to the profession, uh, actually, and some of the, uh, the work that he's done. Um, you know, any chance to write um, either brief writing or motions, um, to be able to, to learn how to find the law and then succinctly state it and then analyze um, the particular scenario presented uh, will uh, really uh, build your skill set. And I, I encourage um, students who are thinking about this type of work uh, to read, work on reading retention. Um, yes, uh, there is an enormous amount of reading, more than 5,000 pages a month uh, involved in this kind of uh, work. Uh, and the more you can develop your reading and retention skills, your writing skills, the more successful you'll be uh, as a clerk. Thank you. We'll move next to uh, Justice Anderson. Would you please share with us how many judicial clerks are hired by the Minnesota Supreme Court each year? And are they hired as a group or do the individual justices hire their own clerks? So the answer please, to that question, yeah. So the answer to that question is uh, actually uh, it could be both in any given year. Uh, we hire eleven law clerks. Um, each member of the court has a law clerk. Um, the six of us, uh, not the who are not the chief justice, uh, share law clerks. Two of us share a law. Two each two of us shares a law clerk. So you have basically one and a half law clerks. The chief has two law clerks. We do have a mass application process and uh, and uh, and what I'm told to uh, by uh, law clerks who've gone through it a somewhat intimidating interview process with all seven of us asking questions of the uh, applicants but it is also the case that members of the court may hire outside of that process but as a as a tribute to the collegiality as part of the custom and tradition of collegiality we generally don't do that until after 
we finished with the mass hiring process. For example, my law clerk this preceding year, um, this is unusual for me, but it just so happened in this particular instance, um, I hired a law clerk uh, that did not, uh, he wasn't selected for the interview process. I went through the interview process and then hired him. That was, uh, you know, and we, and um, members of the court do that from time to time. So that's the, um, that is the law clerk hiring process. And I would e uh, echo everything that uh, Justice uh, uh, Kern said as well, in terms of, you know, the kinds of qualifications and things we're looking for. And let me just say this uh, to students who might be interested in clerking, but who um, are looking at sort of, you know, maybe their um, academic credentials aren't as strong as some students who are applying to be federal district clerks or clerks for the circuit courts. Um, the reality is, particularly if you're open to um, a clerkship opportunity someplace other than the Twin Cities, um, there are opportunities for almost any successful student uh, at our three law schools um, throughout Minnesota. And there are some great career opportunities that come out of that. You have to be willing to assume that there's life outside of the seven county mosquito control district. And let me tell you, as someone who grew up outside of that, uh, outside of the metropolitan area and practiced law there, um, there are some great opportunities and um, don't close your eyes to them. Thank you. Uh, Justice Hudson, would you uh, have any additional uh, comments in terms of uh, preparing to be a judicial clerk? I think uh, my colleagues here tonight have covered largely covered it. I guess the only other thing I would add is don't don't sell yourself short um, because certain justices are looking for one thing. Some may be looking for another. Um, if you didn't graduate in the top uh, five percent or ten percent of your class, that is not necessarily the death knell. Um, we have, I think, at least one clerk with us now who did not, maybe two, who did not graduate in the top ten percent of their class. And so we're looking at all of the things that Justice Kern and Justice Anderson mentioned, but your references are very important. Um, and so if there's a professor that I can talk to that will talk to me and tell me about your, your, your uh, classroom performance and your demeanor outside of the classroom, and so maybe you're not in the top 10%, that might get you over the, over the hump. Um, and maybe you weren't on law review. That is generally something we're looking for. But as Justice Kern said, if there are other ways that you can demonstrate that you have the writing ability, uh, maybe you were a journalist before you came to law school, maybe um, you did other kinds of writing in other settings. Those are things that, that you, you could and should highlight. Um, and, it, you know, it the other reality is um, Justice Anderson might be looking for one kind of person and I might be looking for someone else. And so and vice versa. And so you never know what might appeal to to the justices. Um, I'm also looking always for someone. I want to know who are you outside of law school? What else have you done um, in your community? To, you know, I, I want someone that's got some uh, some outreach experience and community experience in their in their lives. And so. Those are all important factors. You know, I'm going to Thank jump you, in. Can I just jump in on this, uh, Judge Lang? And I want to add something that I, that I should have said earlier. And that is, um, it's certainly, you know, the law review journal experiences are important. And I don't mean to minimize those. But but um, I can also tell you that, at least I personally, have had very good experience hiring 
students who have been very active in the uh, U of M uh, law school uh, appellate advocacy programs, the competitive contest kinds of things. Um, the the in-depth writing work that you get there and the advocacy work that you do is also uh, really important. So um, I, that is not a universally held view. Um, over, my, over the years, I have colleagues who very much value the, um, the law school experience, as do I, or the um, law review experience, as do I. But it is not the only way to demonstrate uh, your um, abilities uh, to succeed in this environment. Thank you. I'd like to turn to Justice Kern for the next question, and it's probably our final one. And that is related to the COVID-19 pandemic. Can you tell us what changes the Supreme Court in South Dakota has made in response to the pandemic? And are there any changes that were made that will continue? You know, like many uh, state courts, we issued an emergency order uh, to keep our co courts open and to enact some uh, safety uh, protocols during the pandemic. This order uh, authorized the uh, presiding justice judges in each of the seven judicial circuits uh, to uh, enact uh, local orders with our uh, chief justice's approval and the approval of the court to implement uh, some procedures to try to keep things open. Uh, we didn't shut down our courts. Uh, we kept them uh, open, uh, but we greatly increased uh, the use of video conferencing which we call ITV um, for both civil and uh, criminal proceedings. And you know, through that, we gained uh, some remarkable efficiencies and advancements more quickly than we may have liked. And we went further than we may have liked um, out of necessity. Uh, we did suspend jury trials uh, several months in several jurisdictions, but in 2020, South Dakota uh, had 75 cases tried to a jury in more than 2,000 uh, court trials. I was called to jury duty uh, yesterday uh, in my local uh, circuit, and it was a much different protocol with distancing. Uh, I was not selected, by the way. Um, uh, uh, but, uh, you know, the, the chairs were spaced um, six feet apart, masks were required. Um, the jurors, I think, felt relatively uh, protected and uh, at ease uh, in light of the, the uh, protocols that we've developed uh, consistent with what the CDC has uh, recommended. Uh, our Supreme Court held oral arguments uh, via Zoom uh, for uh, a number of proceedings during the height of the pandemic in the spring of 2020 and then returned to full in-person uh, terms. Um, appearing orally uh, for argument before the Supreme Court was certainly a different experience uh, for the lawyers. I felt badly in, in many respects for those who were making their first appearance before the court uh, in that way. I think um, that you lose something. Um, we're still doing many civil hearings and motions by ITV uh, as uh, the pandemic resolves, whether it'll be in one or two or three years, we'll need to do um, uh, some balancing uh, so that we can gain efficiencies, but not lose the value of in-person uh, proceedings. Certainly in my years as a trial court judge, it was important to me to be able to have that in-person contact, certainly with the entry of pleas and sentencing and family law proceedings 
Um, we have done some live streaming you know, for certain proceedings, bond hearings, initial appearances, arraignments in uh, Mahana County uh, for members of the public. Uh, we're also providing a public viewing area and that's greatly uh, increased access. That pilot project's been very uh, successful. Um, so um, we've gained some efficiencies, uh, but there will need to be a balance achieved as we move forward and feel our way uh, forward. Well, thank you very much. We'll turn to Justice Barry Anderson. And could you talk about the Supreme Court's uh, procedures during COVID and also whether or not more online technology uh, is being considered to give citizens uh, greater access to the courts? So we have historically been uh, very tech friendly in terms of access to our courts. In other words, um, for at least 15 years, um, we've had available um, on a delayed basis um, uh, video of our oral arguments. And then a few years ago, we moved to live streaming um, of our arguments uh, on the day of the argument itself. In other words, um, anybody's been able to, to, to see those arguments. When the pandemic hit a year ago, um, we canceled some oral arguments and then moved almost immediately to uh, a virtual uh, oral argument setting. And we have continued in that setting uh, to this day. I think that we'll finish out this term May and June, um, and then we'll see what September brings. Um, I haven't discussed it with my colleagues. No votes have been taken. What follows is my opinion, but I think it's very probable that there'll be uh, some form of return to live oral argument in September. Um, candidly, I think it's worked pretty well, um, and we've had uh, pretty good feedback from the lawyers who have participated. One of the things that we've done, in, in, incidentally, is we instituted a practice which I think is going to survive the, the Zoom experience, which is giving the uh, advocates uh, three minutes at the start of their presentation to uh, give some uninterrupted time to tell us, tell the court why uh, why they uh, why their side should prevail. We have a very active bench, and in the, the prior universe in which we operated, you didn't get three minutes; you might get a half a minute mm -hmm. or or uh, maybe a minute if you're lucky. Uh, so, so you know, there are going to be things that we're. I think we're going to continue to do um, uh, via Zoom. Um, you know, there may be some rule committee meetings. Uh, we certainly have. It certainly has allowed participation from people all in all parts of Minnesota in a way in which you know a full day travel might have made that less practical. Uh, but I think in general, um, the thing that you lose uh, is body language and the what you know, kind of, sort of the gestalt, so to speak, of the conversation uh, that helps you decide what you're going to do with a case. And I always illustrate this by talking about my former colleague, uh, uh, David Lillehog. Um, I could look down the bench and I could see him getting all wound up to ask somebody a question and you could see that finger beginning to rotate as he's aiming for the uh, microphone button. Well, you lose all of that in the uh, in the electronic environment. I will say at the district court level, we were talking about this before we came on air, so to speak. Uh, Judge Lang and I were visiting a little bit about this. Um, I think that um, it doesn't work as well for contested proceedings, uh, evidentiary kinds of proceedings, but certainly for preliminary hearings and, and uh, other um, other similar kinds of proceedings, I wouldn't be at all surprised to see us maintain something like this in the post-pandemic environment, simply because it's more convenient for the lawyers, it's more convenient for the 
uh, parties as well. Um, I don't think sentencing works as well for obvious reasons. It's hard to commit the, the defendant to the, you know, to the commissioner of corrections uh, virtually. That doesn't work very well. But um, but in other respects, I think we're going to see uh, we're going to see some more use of Zoom and equivalent technologies. Thank you. Uh, Lang, may I add a few things? Yes, you're next. <laughs> okay, you were coming to me anyway. Okay, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I, I would echo everything that uh, Justice Anderson said, but I, I just want to add a couple of other things to it. As he mentioned, uh, we started giving attorneys three minutes at the beginning uh, to state their position. And what's been interesting is to watch how attorneys use that time. The really mm -hmm. good appellate attorneys use it effectively. They have they frame their argument. They in those three minutes, they take you from beginning to end. They highlight the, the law that's relevant, why you know that's in their favor and they come out with a concise statement about what they want the court to do. The less experienced or not, you know, not as talented, uh, if you will, appellate attorneys end up kind of wandering here and there, here and there. And um, it's it's it. They don't take a good uh, they don't make good use of that time. But the attorneys love it so much. I mean, we've heard a lot of feedback. So Justice Anderson's absolutely right about that. So that's something we may we may continue with. I don't know what we'll do. And correct me if I'm wrong, Justice Anderson, I don't think we voted on this, you know, right now so that you don't have this sort of hodgepodge that you have here in person, we ask questions in order of seniority. And so um, I think the lawyers like that as well, because it's predictable. And so the chief, for, on some cases, will start with Justice Anderson, if she herself doesn't have something to ask. And as, mm -hmm. so she'll start with Justice Anderson as a senior uh, judge, and then me, and then down the line. And then other days, she'll start at the other end with Justice Moore, and we go back up the ladder. But you know, as an attorney, who the next question's coming from. And I think they like that as opposed to the the sort of, you know, firing squad kind of uh, thing that, that's mm -hmm. going on. The one thing, though, that I have missed doing in person, and this is to pick up on something Justice Anderson said, um, I think it is harder, though, for the attorneys. Not only is it harder for us to read each other, as Justice Anderson was talking about, um, and that's important, but I think it's harder for the attorneys to read us as well. They, it's very difficult to pick up cues about, you know, and to take the temperature of the full court on Zoom. And you just don't have that same eye contact, body language. And I think that makes a, can make a significant difference in your argument because you should be picking up um, on what's going on on that bench. And then the other way that I that I think it has uh, been a detriment is um, we stopped conferencing after oral arguments in person. And so we do our conferencing by Zoom as well. And that, I think, has been a negative in, in a sense, because when you work and it goes back to something Justice Kern said, when you work with for us seven people, we're we're a small group, we're a tight knit group. We spend a lot of time with each other. It is important as you're discussing these these, you know, difficult legal issues that you be able to see one another and talk to one another and really communicate with each other. And particularly when we don't agree with each other, when there's a strong dissent possibly in the group, um, you it's important that that we see that and and be able to engage with each other in that way. And so in that sense, I, I feel badly for Justice Moore, our newest uh, justice, because he only had a couple of if maybe one or two, if that 
where we met in person so that he could get a sense of, of how we do what we do. Um, but for all of us, I think the sooner we're able to get back to that, uh, the better the better we'll be. So so there are pros and cons to it. There have been pros and cons. No, no question. So. Thank you. Well, that that is a very, very teachable moment for all the lawyers that are listening in terms of how to prepare themselves to come before the Supreme Court in South Dakota or Minnesota. And I hope the law students have been able to hear about a pathway to clerkships. And if there are any uh, questions, I know we have uh, a staff uh, that is prepared to uh uh, Elisa, to uh, give those out. Yes, I'll encourage everyone to use the Q&A function at the bottom and to, to put your questions in there. And it looks like Dean Jenkins actually has, has a question. So we'll start there. Okay. <laughs> Great, thank you. So my question is about a phenomenon we're seeing at the US Supreme Court level, which is the really, I think, the growth of the specialized bar. Right. There was always a specialized Supreme Court bar, but um, from what I'm understanding, it's becoming it's growing in the sense that they're taking a larger and larger percentage of the cases are handled by the same kind of set of attorneys um, at the U.S. Supreme Court level. Is that a phenomenon that you're seeing at the state level? And if so, is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? Would it be a good thing to have uh, more concentration of cases with a specialized Supreme Court bar at the state level? So, so let me take a let me take a run at that. Um, uh, I do think we are seeing some of that in terms of um, you know we, we see we see many more of the of the same advocates. Um, on the other hand. We still see quite a few cases represented by attorneys who will see one or two times um, and never see them again. And I don't, I, I would, I don't really want to see the day where it's a specialized bar. Um, I mean, there's going to be some specialization just by virtue of the types of cases that come before us. If you've got a complex hospital administration legal issue, you're probably going to get a big downtown law firm that specializes in that. That's kind of the way it goes. But um, uh, the only comment I would make is if you don't have a, an opportunity to regularly appear in an appellate court, either at the Court of Appeals or the Supreme Court, um, you really do need to prepare for that. And you need to think about the fact that this is not a trial uh, a court appearance. And you need to think about how you're persuading uh, appellate lawyers um, or appellate judges to see the wisdom of your argument as an appellate lawyer. And um, the, there will continue to be some specialization, but um, I don't want to see us go the route where um, you, you just very infrequently see somebody uh, new. Okay, any other uh, comments? I would just uh, right. add that, that um, we see uh, obviously the lawyers from the attorney general's office who are appearing on behalf of the state uh, frequently. Uh, but we have um, uh, quite a diverse uh, bar as far as those who are appearing for appellate uh, uh, advocacy. And, you know, I would uh, echo what uh, Justice Anderson said, that you do need to prepare if it's your first or second argument before uh, an appellate court. And I really think that that moot court process where you 
uh, present your argument to three or four or five or more persons uh, prior to giving it live is really a helpful uh, process. I also agree that I wouldn't want to see just a specialized core of appellate lawyers who appeared. Um, I like to see uh, a broad uh, variety of attorneys appearing uh, before the court and arguing their positions. Thank you. Justice Hudson, any uh, comment? No, I, right. I completely agree with my colleagues. <laughs> okay. Well, we are at eight o'clock. I'm going to turn it over to uh, Dean Jenkins. Great. Well, uh, unless there are any additional questions that have come in on the Q&A, uh, Alyssa, are we? Sure. Actually, I was just going to say, uh, so one that came in, um, licensing reforms is something that's been talked about, especially with some of the challenges around holding bar exams during the pandemic. What are your thoughts on diploma privilege and should it be considered more widely? So I'm going to take a run at that as the um, uh, justice assigned in our court to the Board of Law Examiners. Um, and I know this is a sensitive topic and it's a really complicated issue. So um, we're probably not going to get to the bottom of it tonight. Um, but a couple of observations here. Uh, there have been some states uh, in the uh, coronavirus era who have uh, experimented with uh, a diploma privilege. Uh, Minnesota had the opportunity to do that and declined. Uh, and um, we have administered our bar exams uh, as scheduled um, and uh, successfully uh, without incident. And we're going to be probably continuing to do that. Now, the question is going forward, what, do you, what about diploma privileges and the like? Um, that is a question that the court has never, or the court in my time, has not directly addressed. Um, we've had a bar exam since the early 1920s. We used to have the diploma privilege, um, moved away from it in that era uh, because of uh, unsatisfactory experiences. And uh, the problem that the bar exam presents in this, in this sense is um, the law schools are in a different place than the Supreme Court. Supreme Court's in a position where it needs to be concerned with lawyer uh, competence and protecting the public. I'm not suggesting law schools aren't concerned about that, of course they are. But, but they're in a different place um, on this question than, than the Supreme Court. I mean, they, um, they're interested in students coming in, students being successful, students graduating, that's all great. We have great relationships with all three of our law schools. Uh, we value those relationships. We're hoping to see them continue. But if we're gonna protect the public, how do we go about doing that? And candidly, for Almost all of the professions that I can think of, architecture, professional engineering, medical, uh, medicine, uh, certified public accountants, um, and the legal business, um, we still have a bar exam. So I think my own personal view is um, I'm not um, an advocate at, the, at this point for moving to a diploma privilege. But I am. Uh, it's interesting to watch the innovation that's going on in that space about improving the bar exam, focusing more on uh, some skill-based kinds of issues. Um, and there, the advent of the uniform bar exam has really helped in this regard because it's given students in Minnesota much broader opportunities. And we're now, we're now approaching almost 40, 40 jurisdictions that take the UBE. So 
Uh, I understand the question. It's a great question. Uh, there are arguments for the diploma privilege. I would not suggest that there, there aren't, but I don't see any immediate change in our practice. Now, keep in mind, the, the full court gets to vote on that, and six of them could tell me I'm completely wrong. It happens periodically anyway. So, you know, you know, we'll see what happens, but that's my the only thing I guess I would add to that, uh, Judge Lang, is, um, you know, there's a lot of uh, research out there now about, um, you know, the um, the efficacy of the bar and what does it really tell you? And is it the best measure uh, of competency? Um, and I think, you know, there's strong arguments that can that can be made that it, that it is not. Um, but again, there's a lot of research on, ongoing, as Justice Anderson uh, indicated. Um, so we'll just have to see where that goes. But as Justice Anderson said, you know, we've had the bar here in Minnesota since 1921. And when you look around the nation, very few states, I, I want to say it's maybe two or three, um, actually utilize uh, the diploma privilege. And so that in and of itself it says something. Um, and my concern um, with it is twofold. One, if uh, a student, say, from the U has a job elsewhere and um, and that employer is requiring that they've passed the bar, um, the, that's what they need to do is they need to pass a bar and and having the diploma privilege is not is not going to be sufficient in those instances. Um, you know, when it came to us this this past summer, um, as Justice Anderson said, we we decided against it. But part of that was because of the extraordinary measures that our board of law examiners uh, went to. And Justice Anderson alluded to this to make sure that the bar examination was as safe as possible. We split it in multiple sites so that people weren't all together. There were staggered entrance times. There were limited, you know, we limited the number of people in a particular room. Uh, St. Thomas Law School gave us the opportunity to hold, uh, to put some folks there. Um, and a number of other things. And so, um, and fortunately, you know, all went well. And to our knowledge, uh, there were no uh, uh, COVID-19 in infections. Um, so, you know, it, it is a it is a difficult puzzle and, a, and, a, and a, a difficult conversation. And we also amended our student practice rules to allow uh, students to be able to uh, to practice if they were not able to sit for the bar immediately. So, we had a very long discussion, and as Justice Anderson said, we we're probably not completely done with it, um, mm -hmm. but um, we, we felt comfortable where we came out in, in July, and, and I, I think we came to the right, uh, right decision. Thank you. Uh, Justice Kern, we want to talk about what has happened in South Dakota to uh, at the Supreme Court level to improve uh, equity and diversity within the legal system. Do you see any initiatives or have there been any initiatives or measurements to look at uh, the impact of the court on diversity and justice in terms of the people who come before the court? Well, um, we have been fortunate in that uh, the Supreme Court, through the leadership of our uh, former Chief Justice, uh, David Gilbertson, who served uh, for over 20 years, uh, really formed some remarkable uh, partnerships with our executive and legislative uh, branches um, to bring about some pretty significant system reforms that I think have impacted the system 
across the board. And we went through some revisions to both the adult and the juvenile justice systems, looking for alternatives to uh, certainly out-of-home placements for juveniles only in the most um, serious circumstances and worked really to build um, much stronger uh, community resources to serve children at home. The modifications in the adult system were quite far-reaching, including um, modification of some criminal penalties, as well as a requirement for presumptive probation. You know, 15 years ago, South Dakota didn't have any problem-solving courts. Uh, we now have 19 uh, specialty courts focusing on treatment, rehabilitation, uh, outcomes other than incarceration. They've served several, about 2,500 people. We've had um, some remarkable success in our DUI drug veteran and, and now two mental health courts, um, which will graduate their first uh, successful participants uh, this summer. Uh, further, uh, we've developed um, in a pilot project um, as through um, the Hensley Foundation, some, a way to provide virtual crisis care for those coming into the systems with access to mental health providers for persons who need that initially upon arrest and other points in the system. And we have eight counties uh, that are uh, in the implementation phase. You know, we're also uh, a very rural state. Um, and so we had uh, the problem uh, where in many circumstances, folks had to drive more than a hundred miles perhaps to consult with a lawyer. You know, now we're seeing some real improvements having been through the pandemic with the opportunities in, in cre it created uh, for uh, ITV and, and remote uh, access uh, to counsel. But we developed um, a rural attorney program uh, that uh, provides some funding for young attorneys uh, if they will move to a qualifying rural county um, with uh, less than a, a population of less than 10,000 persons. And that's now been, this pilot was extended by the legislature and uh, to fund 32 spots uh, for 32 young lawyers who would go into these very rural counties and commit to stay for five years in exchange for this um, very modest five-year stipend. And we currently have 27 uh, counties uh, that have lawyers uh, participating. Uh, this program is so unique that it's been recognized by the ABA and we've received interest from other states around the country. So uh, there are many uh, positive things um, underway to try to better serve uh, the persons appearing. Thank you very much. We're going to turn to Justice Hudson and ask, about the Minnesota Supreme Court in terms of its leadership and initiatives to increase uh, equity and diversity. We know that 25 years ago, there was the Minnesota Supreme Court Commission on Racial Bias in the Courts, and also prior to that, a Minnesota Supreme Court Commission on Gender Fairness in the Courts. But could you talk about the ongoing uh, activities of the Minnesota Supreme Court? Uh, yes, we right now have a uh, committee that is a part of our uh, judicial council, which of course is the uh, guiding uh, body of the of the court, uh, the uh, committee on uh, equality um, and inclusion. I believe is the is the formal name, and that's uh, the liaison to that committee is Justice Chudich. 
and they have been engaged in a wide range of activities and continue to to be so. Um, one of the things that has come out of that committee, just as an example, is a implicit bias uh, bench card that the district court judges have been using now for several years, which encourages the judges themselves to uh, look at their decision making and um, you know would they, for instance, make the same decision um, if the person before them were of a different race or a different gender or a different background? And so it helps district court judges, um, you know, get at the the implicit biases that that we all carry, and just because of of our background. And I know one of the things that recently came out of that committee, and I believe was approved by the Judicial Council, and Justice Anderson, please correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it was recently approved and is in use, is an implicit bias jury instruction um, that is given now. Thank you. I got the thumbs up. Um, that is given um, uh, to jurors now um, to make to make jurors aware of potential biases that that they may have um, and how to address those. And so I think those kinds of initiatives are, are so important. Um, the committee has also been um, uh, uh, involved in um the speaking sessions, and I may have the wrong terminology for it, but where we've set up uh, conversations in communities of color and other communities periodically uh, to get input from the community about how they're feeling about, you know, and what is going on and to explain judicial processes um, so that that uh, people have a better understanding of, of how the court system works and what they can expect and why certain things happen. Um, so those are, are, are just some of the initiatives. Obviously, Obviously, there's I think there's been some work on the bail on bail reform as well. Um, and it's an ongoing process. It, it is certainly an ongoing process. I do think, however, though, you know, that as a community and as a society, when we think about criminal justice reform, um, we need to also keep our eye not only on the consequences, because by the time you get to the court system, that's a consequence. Um, we need to be looking at what causes people to come into the system and in particular, what causes uh, people of color to come into the system. And so then I think if we can get our heads around, OK, we need to be looking at educational disparities. Yes. We need to be looking yeah. at housing disparities and health disparities, because if we can get a handle on that, um, because as we all know, you know, education is the great equalizer. And so if people are able to afford to feed their children and to get good jobs and to have living wages, uh, some of the, the criminal activity you, you we see will be lessened. And so it, we have to we can't it's not a binary kind of choice. I think we have to engage in. It's about, you know, what do we do in the in the criminal justice system? But how do we. Uh, what do we do on the other end on the on the cause factor? And then the last thing I would say is, you know, we just need to keep um, and, and the court is, is working on has worked on this as well, encouraging and making sure that we're uh, getting uh, people of diverse backgrounds into every aspect of the judicial system so that um, there are as many women and people of color who are prosecutors. And so it's not just the judges. 
um, because we all know the the tremendous discretion that prosecutors have in the in the judicial system. Um, and so whether to, you know, who to charge, whether to charge, what to charge uh, and the most important power they have, which is the power to plea bargain um, and whether to offer those plea bargains. So it's a holistic you know, picture that that we have to get our get our heads around and and, and be committed to. Um, and I think, you know, the court, the Supreme Court is is um, uh, helping to, to lead the way in, in those efforts. Um, so those are my thoughts. Well, thank you. And uh, Justice Anderson, uh, the final question that's been provided to me is, do judges have a role in bringing important legal or judicial issues to the attention of the legislature or to the public? So my answer to that is um, we have a role, but it's limited. It's limited in the context of the case that is before us. Um, we may have lots of opinions about uh, what sentencing should look like or uh, what particular sentences the legislature should use to um, attempt to um, uh, punish people engaged in certain kinds of behavior. Uh, but um, it comes up only in the context of a specific case. Uh, and candidly, members of the court have differing levels of comfort. Um, in the course of my 20 years, I'm thinking of some of my colleagues who have served and have now have since retired. Um, some were, um, were very willing to you know, offer advice in the context of a concurring opinion or a footnote in a majority opinion if nobody squawked too loudly. Uh, uh, in the rest of the majority. Um, and there are others who felt very strongly that that really should be left to um, the legislature. It's a separation of powers problem, and we do have to be conscious of that, that, that we have certain limited areas where we um, where we uh, uh, have authority, um, and the legislature has, um, you know, other areas of authority. Um, you know, I just would say, just observe on the whole sentencing issue, I've been at this long enough now. I started practicing in 1979, and, and this is, was pre-sentencing guidelines before the sentencing guidelines came in. They came in in part, and I'm engaging in gross oversimplification here, but sentencing guidelines came in in part because of some perceived unfairness in terms of disparity in terms of sentences that judges were offering. I now read in the newspaper that there are concerns that maybe um, there should be some changes made to, to sentencing that uh, perhaps uh, some offenses, um, there should be more flexibility uh, in terms of how prisoners behave in prison and, and you know, you know the, and thus eligible for release on an earlier basis. Well, that's, that's a model that we had, and then we kind of moved away, and now we're talking about, I mean, these are all policy decisions that the legislature gets to make. Um, we may have opinions about them. We may comment about them from time to time. Uh, but for the most part, uh, we need to respect the, the, the legislative role here and uh, and um, administer the law as it's been given to us and subject to, uh, of course, um, uh, the inherent the inherent authority that the judiciary has. Thank you. Is there, uh, Justice Kern, is there an onboarding process for a Supreme Court? Justice in South Dakota, do you have a manual or procedural orientation? Um, I, we do have uh, internal court rules, uh, but uh, we have a very collegial court uh, that has been uh, very engaging with our new members. You know, I've served on the court now uh, for six and a half years, and I am our senior justice. 
uh, our court has undergone, uh, as has our trial court bench, what I would call uh, a silver tsunami of retirements, uh, where many persons have retired from our circuit court bench, probably 20, more than 20, probably pushing half of our judiciary and our entire Supreme Court has retired in the last six and a half years. And so, you know, we have um, internal court rules uh, that uh, are written and then um, our institutional um, memory and heritage about, you know, the case processing and so on. And a very collegial court and a very strong group of uh, now retired justices. Our court was also committed in staggering also the retirements so that people could be uh, appointed in a gradual uh, fashion. And that's been profoundly helpful. Okay, thank you. Uh, Justice Hudson, is there a formal uh, onboarding process or manuals to help uh, justice get started on the Minnesota Supreme Court? Well, I think yes and no, and I may need your help on this, Justice Anderson, but uh, when I came on board five years ago, there was nothing formal. I mean, we too obviously have internal operating procedures and all of that, um, but because, as you know, Justice Kern was talking about, it is a collegial court, um, you know, folks reached out to me, first and foremost, actually, was uh, Justice Anderson um, and said, uh, this is how I do what I do, and this is how it works, and this is what I do and this is what you can expect. And here's some samples of, of things. And and this is how I take my conference notes. And, you know, and, and it was just tremendously helpful to me. Um, and so, you know, for, we're fortunate in that although we've had that same tsunami, you know, in uh, here in Minnesota, particularly at the district court level, not quite as much at the appellate level, but but you know, we're getting close there as well. We're fortunate that as, you know, Justice Anderson, um, Okay, did I turn my mic off? Yes, yes. Hi. Justice Anderson's been with the court, you know, 16, 17 years, something like that. Uh, the chief has been with us uh, 15 years. So we have that institutional uh, memory. But kind of like Justice Kern was talking about, once you get past Justice Anderson, it drops to me. And um, I've been on the court five years. And so I'm, I'm now the you know, second in, in seniority uh, after Barry. Um, but I do think, and I'll let Justice Anderson speak to this, when Justice Moore came on uh, last year replacing Justice Lilhog, I do believe uh, the chief kind of assigned you, Justice Anderson, to, yeah. to, we did something, we decided we should do something a little more formal. And I do, and the chief assigned Justice Anderson to, uh, to kind of work with Justice Moore. And I think that's been a uh, been a good thing. But again, people from the court reached out to me. And like I say, Justice Anderson being the first one, I think, actually to do that. And that was tremendously helpful. So I'll add. Yeah, no, in fact, in fact, we don't have a formal process, but it was apparent in this uh, pandemic era that we needed to do something that was more than than the ad hoc version of things that we've been doing previously. And uh the, so I set up uh, weekly conference calls with uh, with Justice Moore, and we you know we went through the process and procedures. A lot of this is set out in rule, but candidly, one of the problems with trying to put together a manual or a formal onboarding process is it's all custom and tradition, and um, a lot I shouldn't say all, but much of it is. And 
um, you know, you convey that by experience. And of course, in the middle of a pandemic, it's a little hard to do that. So uh, I think that, um, yeah, I think that we are, in fact, uh, this is, it's the question that you raise, uh, Judge Lang, is uh, very much on the minds of the Chief Justice because um, she's identified that as a long range planning point that we need to have a conversation about. So come back to us in a year or two. And we may actually have a fancy little book and a brochure and uh, and a video and uh, maybe a TikTok or uh, an Instagram, whatever those things are, uh, to kind of help people get uh, to get uh, grounded. Well, thank you very much. I'm going to ask uh, Alyssa if there are any other questions. Uh, from the audience. Yeah, we have one. I think we've got time for, for one more. So this one came in. It said, the panel talked about the benefit of general practice, yet it seems that law firms seem to be focused more on creating and hiring specialists in the legal field. How would you advise a, a student who's more interested in that general practice uh, to advocate for, for themselves and, and to be able to do that with their career? I'm going to take a run at this. Um, uh, something I have a real interest in, and the, and the uh, questioner is absolutely correct. Particularly larger law firms, um, there is—I mean, they do make an effort to rotate people around, but the reality is that there is a specialization component, and you certainly can't. Find, I mean, they're paying you, right? So you can't fight against that. But you can look for other opportunities, um, volunteer opportunities. Uh, I was uh, surprised when I joined the Supreme Court. And one of the things we do as an outreach is we go out and talk to various groups. And um, I was surprised at the number of um, pr uh, pro bono opportunity kinds of things that are out there. And you obviously have to check with your employer and see that it, that it doesn't create any issues. But you have to you have to kind of work at it a little bit. And I would offer one other little piece of advice, uh, sort of more generally on that topic. Um, and that would be this. Look for opportunities to get outside of your comfort zone. Um, uh, if you if you um, see the world in a particular way and your friends are all kind of in that same camp, uh, look for an opportunity to be with people who have differing views on questions. Um, you know, one of the great advantages I had as a practicing lawyer is, um, you know, the lawyer that you're opposing today, you might be representing dad and he might be representing mom in a family law matter. Next week, it might be the reverse. You might be on the plaintiff side. That same lawyer might be on the defense side. It might be the reverse the next week. You have to look for opportunities more generally, I think, in this era of, you know, siloing people, you know, siloing their lives, look for opportunities to get outside of that silo. And I have to say, candidly, if you want to be a judge someday, um, it is helpful to be able to point to a broad spectrum of people who are willing to say, I worked with him or her um, on this matter. And um, although we didn't agree, it was a very professional kind of relationship. Um, and, uh, you know, we've stayed in professional contact in the years that followed. Um, that's a very powerful testimony to somebody who's going to be deciding um, issues and maybe deciding issues in a way she or he doesn't like to decide them simply because the law requires it. So, so that would be just some general advice that I would offer on that, that whole specialization thing. Look for ways to get out of your comfort zone, whatever that might mean to you. Well, I think we are so close we would turn it over to Dean Jenkins to be able to sign us out.
Thank you very, very much, every one of you, for your your candor, your wisdom, and for the time that you spent uh, this evening with our audience. Indeed, indeed. Thank you so much. Uh, uh, and, and let me add, uh, Justice uh, Anderson, Justice Hudson, uh, uh, Justice Kern, uh, Judge Lang, we so appreciate you and your insights. Uh, this was really terrific. Uh, and we are so proud of you. Uh, I always say a Minnesota law degree can take you anywhere. And you are great examples uh, of that and your inspirations, all four of you. So this has been a terrific discussion. Uh, for those of you celebrating Spring Alumni Weekend, we have more events. Uh, we look forward to seeing you there. Congratulations. Thank you all. Good night. This podcast has been brought to you by the University of Minnesota Law School. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. And subscribe to our YouTube channel for more Minnesota Law stories, news, and information. To subscribe to the official Minnesota Law podcast channel, please visit soundcloud.com backslash Minnesota Law or find us on your preferred podcast network. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, the University of Minnesota or the University of Minnesota Law School. None of the content should be considered legal advice.